And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From The Guardian, we have a delightful mystery that has been solved. So if you are not aware of the mystery of the word slut being scrawled on the Grapes of Wrath manuscript, Hmm. we now have an answer. (laughs) I was not aware. Is it an acronym? (laughs) (laughs) I know. So so if you're not familiar with this mystery, allow me to be the one to introduce this to Mm -hmm. you. The Grapes of Wrath was written by Steinbeck in a frenzy of creativity in under 100 days between May and October of 1938. Yeah, I didn't know it was that, you know, manic of an exercise for him. It includes all of his swear words, which were excised from the final novel, which, I mean, may have lent a completely different tone to it. But there's also that faint slut, which is written in red at the end of the book. And... When the manuscript was released last week, a Steinbeck expert named Susan Schillinglaw described the word slut as an archival mystery. (laughs) She wondered whether maybe it was Steinbeck's wife, Carol, who might have playfully written it in red and then erased it off, or maybe someone from the University of Virginia archives had defaced the manuscript. But once the Guardian article about the facsimile was published, a handful of Swedish scholars got in touch with Schillinglaw and pointed out the meaning of the word slut in Swedish. And get this, slut is the Swedish expression for the end, which is written on the last page of all kinds of books, especially children's books. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Shaheen, an academic at Stockholm University, said to Schillinglaw, quote, a well-placed slut always makes me laugh. I wonder if it might have been the same for Steinbeck or his wife, who I believe visited Sweden in 1937. As bookish types, they might well have discovered the word. They might even have used it as an inside joke, as I have known other Americans around here to do. (laughs) Uh So Shaheen said he wasn't sure if it was a stupid thing to email Schillinglaw about. Quote, I'm not generally convinced that senior female academics are interested in emails about multilingual, arguably misogynistic wordplay from random men on the internet. (laughs) But he then decided that, quote, even highly literate Anglophiles don't typically know the Swedish expression for the end, so Professor Schillinglaw might not yet have had occasion to consider whether it was Swedish. Schillinglaw was then contacted not only by Shaheen, but two other Scandinavians with similar suggestions. She was delighted to get that email and believes that that is the answer to the mystery. Because she said, yes, the Steinbecks went to Sweden in the summer of 1937, which is the summer before he wrote this book. Mm. And they also know the Swedish artist and author Bo Besko, whose mother was the children's author Elsa Besko. So they're guessing the wives probably both knew what slut meant in Swedish. Carol must have added the word at some point. Quote, it's so like her. She was funny, extravagant, loved wordplay. 
She loved to shock and amuse. It's just the kind of touch she would add to the manuscript in jest. Well, I'm convinced. I mean, I was a little bit skeptical until you started talking about they've, they've been to Sweden. They know Swedish. They, yeah, I mean, that completely yeah. makes sense. And it also makes me really want to finish every book and write slut at the end of it. Oh, How yeah. wonderful. That's going on because every manuscript from here on out. Like. Yeah. It's worth pointing out that the author of this article on The Guardian did indeed end the article with the word slut. <laughs> Lovely. Like you do. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com and it's titled New Zealand lays off its official city wizard after 23 years of loyal service. Oh, there's a lot to unpack in that. Like, <laughs> yes, there is. They had a wizard. <laughs> then they fired the wizard. Yep. Okay, what kind of work does the Wizard of New Zealand do? It's a little bit hard to tell, you know, how much is tongue-in-cheek, how much is an actual wizarding practice, but let's <laughs> dig in. So, <laughs> since 1998, UK-born Ian Brackenberry has been paid a solid 16000 New Zealand dollars, roughly $11,300 USD Whoa. per year, to be the official wizard for the city of Christchurch in New Zealand. Hmm. Now, after slightly more than two decades on the city's payroll, authorities are officially cutting ties with Brackenberry in attempts to modernize the city. Uh, yeah. But don't they know that witches and wizards are super hot? Yeah, I mean, I think they're going in the wrong direction. Maybe they don't look <laughs> at the news, you know. Like, maybe that's why they've had a wizard for so long. And they're like, you know what? Maybe we should finally just change it up a little bit. But anyways, <sighs> so the concept of a city wizard is a bit wild, but it mostly boils down down to Brackenberry acting as a sort of living tourist attraction. Yeah. The Guardian says that the Christchurch City Council had contracted Brackenberry to promote their city through acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services. (laughs) Wizard-like services? Yes. (laughs) And this was after Brackenberry was seen performing his wizard shtick in public spaces throughout the 70s and 80s. Oh, he's been doing this a while then. Oh, yeah. So he was basically like a busker who then became a public servant to continue busking? (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. (gasps) And he's also very well loved. And when the city council tried stopping him, the public protested because, you know, (laughs) who doesn't love a good magic man? (laughs) And New Zealand's prime minister finally relented in 1990, asking Brackenberry if he'd consider being New Zealand's official wizard. So he got promoted from Christchurch to the entire country, which is pretty wild. (laughs) Moore wrote at the time, I am concerned that your wizardry is not at the disposal of the entire nation. I suggest, therefore, that you should urgently consider my suggestion that you become the wizard of New Zealand, Antarctica, and relevant offshore areas. Antarctica? They, uh, what? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> just <slipped laughs> Maybe that parts of Antarctica are well, related I mean, to New Zealand. Zealand? Huh. Yeah. yeah, that feels like a little bit of an aggressive move by New Zealand to just go ahead and say, hey, we're going to claim magical jurisdiction over another continent while we're at it. Yeah, Hello? but I mean, hey, if nobody else is claiming it, sure. you know, may as well. <laughs> Brackenberry graciously accepted and the rest is history. 
while the Wiz spent most of his time in Christchurch's main square dressed in his full Wiz garb, pointy black hat, black robes, staff and all, and there is a photo in this article, by the way, <laughs> he's been called out to the farther reaches of New Zealand and Africa to rain dance and ward off dry spirits during the bouts of extreme drought that these regions tend to go through. He, so he's had ambassador work. He's gone to Africa to do yeah. this? Wow. Yeah, Absolutely. In at least one case, these dances apparently worked. The <laughs> New York Times wrote in 1988 about South Island getting buckets of rain about half an hour after one of the wizard's performances. He told the Times, I live in my own universe, adding that he had no need for a driver's license, bank account, or social security number because he was a <laughs> fictional character. Ah, okay. <laughs> but, you know, this is his word. So, like, this is mm -hmm. what he considers himself. And, of course, mm -hmm. reality does catch up with us all. In recent <laughs> years, Brackenberry has come to realize that his wizard persona isn't enough to ward off parking tickets, old age, and the end of the contract with the city that's employed him for the past 23 years. A Christchurch Council spokesperson told The Guardian that it wasn't anything personal. It was just that, well, wizards weren't that cool anymore, according <gasps> to them. How dare they? Mm -mm. Yeah. <laughs> and weren't part of the vibrant modern city image that Christchurch wanted to promote to tourists and residents. Mm. Brackenberry told The Guardian that he'd still be keeping up his usual wizardry over in the Christchurch Arts Center for anyone that came by, even if he wasn't on the city's payroll anymore. Canceling the contract, he said, implies that I am boring and old, but there is nobody else anything like me in Christchurch. I mean, they can't stop him from performing. No. Because he also can't have been living on just $11,000 a year this whole time. I'm sure he gets tips. He's he's a busker, mm -hmm. like you said, who just happened yeah. to be getting a stipend from the city to occasionally fly to Africa to a rain dance. Listen, yeah. a PR move to try to make the city look better, this was the wrong way to do it. Sorry, New Zealand. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, but it is actually really interesting because this practice of magical ambassadorship goes back way into our history. If you look up anthropology of how people exchanged information, mostly a lot of cultural exchange happened actually at ports from, you know, pirates and mm -hmm. sailors who would exchange their superstitions and magical practices. And that's mm. how a lot of people like got to know each other. That was one of the main ways that they would, you know, exchange information because it was kind of like a common language of superstition that they could use. Yeah, that's really cool. So, I mean, there, there's some historical precedent for this. It's just surprising that it's lasted this long. You got to think Peter Jackson's not going to take it well. Because, you know, the whole Lord of the Rings thing, I mean, surely yeah. this there were tie-ins to this, and now he's just like, you've ruined my legacy. You've gone in a race. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And if you look at the photo, he really does have a straight-up Gandalf vibe going on mm -hmm. with the hat, the beard, the gnarly staff. Yeah, I bet somebody else starts paying him. I bet this is, this is he's going to get picked up real quick. <laughs> you know what? All he needs is a cell phone and TikTok, okay? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Maybe I just need to consult for this wizard, but uh, we'll see what the payment looks like on that. Yeah, he needs a PR rep for sure. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right, this next one is from Atlas Obscura, and it's called The Canadian Team on the Hunt for Radioactive Artifacts. Ooh, and we huh. start with a cute little anecdote about the Diefenbunker Museum just outside of Ottawa, 
which is held inside a 100,000-square-foot underground facility that was originally constructed in 1959 to function as the emergency headquarters for the Canadian government in case of a nuclear attack. These days, like we said, it's been converted into a museum that focuses on Cold War history and memorabilia. And one of the items in this museum was a device meant to measure radioactivity levels outside the bunker so that the politicians inside would know when it was safe to come out. And they don't really explain why, but they apparently had some suspicions that the device itself might be slightly radioactive. Like maybe it used an isotope to detect an isotope. I don't know. But they were planning to move it for some renovations. So before they had a bunch of workers in close proximity to this device for a long time, they thought it might be a good idea to have a specialist come in with a Geiger counter and just test how safe the thing really was. So the specialist came in. He said, good news. The device is totally fine. But uh, did you know... This other artifact sitting on display right next to all your museum visitors is super radioactive. (laughs) It was just an innocent looking water jug. And apparently it was releasing enough radiation that a person standing next to it for an hour would receive a full year's dose of acceptable (gasps) exposure. Wow. Oh, no. So, you know, museum visitors, not a problem, but staff members definitely Mm -hmm. could have been exposed quite a lot to this thing. And the irony is, when they looked into it, this water jug wasn't accidentally irradiated in some experiment. It was designed intentionally with a lead and uranium lining because in the early 1900s, people thought it was a good and healthy thing to take regular doses of radiation. The jug was marketed (sighs) as the Revigator, and its instruction manual told owners that they should fill the jug with water every night then begin drinking that water in the morning (gasps) and consume a minimum of eight glasses throughout the day for optimum health. Oh. Yeah, and the museum just had this thing on display of like, oh, look, an early 1900s water jug. Like, they did not even suspect (laughs) that this thing (laughs) was intentionally highly radioactive. And the Revigator is far from the only example either. Uranium was used as a porcelain and glass colorant as early as the 1830s, and it was put in everything from dishware to perfume bottles and even dentures. Companies would sell radon-infused face creams and radioactive compresses for injuries. There were shoe stores that would advertise that they could x-ray your foot on site in order to provide the best-fitting shoes. And there were even some x-ray devices that were used at fancy parties where guests would drink irradiated water and then look at each other's organs. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the early 1900s were a cool time. Okay, for a Halloween party, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For a Halloween party, I think that I could see the appeal, but that is terrifying. Yeah, and, you know, they didn't know it was dangerous. Like, Marie Curie died from accidental exposure. They were all just like, oh, look, science, and didn't, yep, it didn't yep. occur to them. <laughs> oh. But so it turns out there's actually quite a lot of this old stuff floating around in antique shops and museums, just mm. radiating away with no one having any idea. And when, for example, an item like this is discovered at the Diefenbunker Museum or elsewhere, they're sort of stuck with this conundrum of this item isn't safe, but also it's maybe an important historical artifact that we don't want to just mm-hmm. bury 100 feet under the ground. So a nuclear waste facility called Canadian Nuclear Laboratories came up with a solution and created a special program called the Historic Artifact Recovery Program, or HARP. And basically what they do is they take in these items as they're found and have created their own little museum on site that is properly shielded so people can still come and view these deadly items from a safe distance. And HARP's administrator Tim Rowe says that the collection actually skyrocketed during the pandemic 
because museums took that downtime to reorganize and reassess their collections. Ah. Like, I don't know why it would occur to them just then, like, oh, we've been meaning to test if these things are radioactive, but now we've got the time. But some of the items they've taken in include a scale used by Marcel Pochon, who studied under Marie Curie before becoming the manager of Canada's primary radium refinery in the 1930s, Hmm. a ton of vintage watches that used radium to make their hands glow in the dark, and some large antique camera lenses that contain thorium. They also cover items that have other hazardous materials like asbestos in architectural pieces and classic cars that contain traces of Freon. So it honestly sounds like a pretty cool museum to go see as long as, you know, you're convinced yeah. it's safe. I mean, right. people are taking tourist vacations to Chernobyl these days, so it might be worth it to save a little on airfare and go up to Canada <laughs> instead. <laughs> get in, loser. We're going antiquing to try to get a radio. Exactly. I wonder, like, it's made me very curious. Now I want to get a Geiger counter and just walk around my house to be sure, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't have a lot of antiques, but I just, I, now I'm suspicious. Right? Yeah, it's kind of terrifying to know how innocuous little knickknacks could be totally poisoned. Mm-hmm. Well, and there mm-hmm. and there's a couple of different things they note in there which like are radioactive, but it's not a problem. Like bananas are apparently ever so slightly <laughs> radioactive because what? the potassium somehow, I don't know, they they skimmed right over mm-hmm. it, but they're like, by the way, your bananas are radioactive. Uh- <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, everything <laughs> is minorly radioactive and even the human body emits like mm-hmm. very okay. small amounts of radiation, but it's not like nuclear radiation, which will kill you. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, if it takes a lot of radium to kill you and the organs hit are specifically lungs and you're eligible for a lung (laughs) transplant. I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Good news from Gizmodo. A drone has delivered lungs to a transplant recipient, which is a medical first. Okay. Did it just deliver them or did it do the transplant? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it just did the delivery. Let's okay, not fair. ask too much of our robots yeah, as we're yeah. just starting to integrate them really into our lives. Things are good. They haven't taken over yet. But Elaine Hodak, who is a 63-year-old engineer, is the first person in history to receive a pair of lungs from a delivery drone. It was a successful flight from Toronto Western Hospital to Toronto General Hospital and only took six minutes. Hmm. Now, now here, I, I have a problem with this. <laughs> Because, yeah, I know, like, we have to test things to find out if they work. But what it sounds like is there was a lung transplant about to happen. And they said, we could easily put you both in the same hospital. But instead, we're going to put you a couple miles apart and fly the lungs across to the other hospital just to see if this lung transplant thing will work. Like, six minutes is nothing. It's not like it went cross country because it had to. I love this. Like, we're going to beta pilot test our new tech with someone urgently awaiting a lung transplant. Also, there will not actually be a pilot. Right, right. Okay, this is how you know that we as podcasters are Americans, because absolutely that is not what happened. Oh, okay. uh, this is Canada, folks. <laughs> let, let's give you a few little details here. Mm-hmm. So even though that drone flight took six minutes, it took 18 months of planning and prep to pull off. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's why. The engineers at Unitair Bioelectronique had to develop a lightweight shipping container that was capable of tolerating vibrations and abrupt changes in elevation and air pressure, among other environmental stresses. 
The team would practice with dummy packages, they performed drop tests, they fitted the carbon fiber container with an emergency parachute and GPS system. And drones have transplanted organs before. Like, we've done this with kidneys, we've done it with corneas, we've done it with a pancreas, but lungs are super challenging because mm. some 80% of donated lungs cannot be used because of problems having to do with, like, insufficient oxygen or a failure to meet minimum functional standards. The reason they chose Toronto General Hospital is because it was the first hospital to perform a lung transplant in 1983 oh, and wow. the first hospital to perform a double lung transplant in 1986. Hmm. And so now that this successful delivery is in the books, United Therapeutics is looking to expand it even more. They'd like to extend the range of its proprietary drones. They want to build units capable of flying 100 miles and then 200 miles. And ultimately, they're hoping to deliver lungs, hearts, kidneys across all of North America. I mean, okay, so yes, <laughs> I agree that this is a useful thing for them to have done because at some point they want to do it across long distances. I'm uh -huh. just saying... This first <laughs> transplant didn't have to happen by drone. They did it to try it out by drone. And that's fine. That's great. I'm just saying the person laying on the hospital bed, waiting patiently, that, that just, it feels like maybe they got the short end of a stick is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> to be, you know what, you're right. In the sense that they were going to have to try this out for real right. someday. Yeah. And yeah, this was the day. but. Listen, it was a resounding success. That's I guess good. it feels That's appropriate great. that the person who got the lungs was an engineer. I mean, maybe they were even stoked. That's true. They could have been in on it. Yeah. They get bragging rights in addition to a new lung. I mean, what, what more do you really want? Come All on. All right. Okay. If they if they were, I mean, obviously they had to sign some sort of consent form, I'm sure. I'm, but, but yeah, they might have thought it was cool. That might be cool to be like, yeah, my lungs were airborne for a while. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully the next article impresses Jennifer to the high exacting <laughs> standards of the damn interesting weekly podcast. It's next link. <laughs> next link. This article comes to us from SciTechDaily.com. It's titled, New Findings Suggest Venus Never Had Oceans, The Conditions Needed for Life. Aw. <laughs> yeah, kind of a bummer, but you know, science. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> science is very often a bummer, so acceptable. Yeah. Yep. So, previous studies have suggested that Venus may have been much more hospitable in the past with its own liquid water oceans. A team of astrophysicists led by the University of Geneva investigated whether our planet's twin did indeed have milder periods. The results published in the journal Nature suggest that this is not the case. Venus has recently become an important research topic for astrophysicists. ESA and NASA have decided this year to send no less than three space exploration missions over the next decade hmm. to the second closest planet to the sun. One of the key questions these missions aim to answer is whether or not Venus ever hosted early oceans. Martin Turbay explains, We simulated the climate of the Earth and Venus at the very beginning of their evolution, more than four billion years ago, when the surface of the planets was still molten. The associated high temperatures meant that any water would have been present in the form of steam, as in a gigantic pressure cooker. Thanks to our simulations, we were able to show that the climatic conditions did not allow water vapor to condense in the atmosphere of Venus. This means that the temperatures never got low enough for the water in its atmosphere to form raindrops that could fall on its surface. Hmm. Instead, water remained as a gas in the atmosphere and oceans never formed. 
One of the main reasons for this is the clouds that form preferentially on the night side of the planet. These clouds cause a very powerful greenhouse effect that prevented Venus from cooling as quickly as previously thought. And surprisingly, the astrophysicists' simulations also reveal that the Earth could have easily suffered the same fate as Venus. If the Earth had just been a little closer to the Sun, our home planet would look very different today. Hmm. It is likely the relatively weak radiation of the young Sun that allowed the Earth to cool down enough to condense the water that forms our oceans. For Emmeline Beaumont, professor at UNIGE, member of Plain S and co-author of the study, this is a complete reversal in the way we look at what has long been called the faint young sun paradox. It's always been considered as a major obstacle to the appearance of life on Earth. So the argument was that if the sun's radiation was much weaker than today, it would have turned the Earth into a ball of ice hostile to life. But it turns out that for the young, very hot Earth, this weak sun may have in fact been an unhoped-for opportunity. Hmm. David Ehrenreich, who is also a co-author on the study, says, Our results are based on theoretical models are an important building block in answering the questions of the history of Venus. But we will not be able to rule on the matter definitively on our computers. The observations of the three future Venusian space missions will be essential to confirm or refute our work. And that's about where it ends. Uh, you know, it is a scientific reveal, so it's a little bit dry. But it's kind of cool to know that we're able to find out this about our own mm -hmm. planet's history and yeah. where we came from as a result of it. So, you know, that's the science. Well, and just to know that, like, it was yet another close call. Like, there's so many different ways that Earth could have not ended up habitable. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact yeah. that there's water vapor, I didn't think we knew for sure there was water yeah. on Venus. Or maybe they're only saying there used to be water. And now there's not. But at the time there was water, it couldn't have condensed. Right, maybe. right. But I mean, high pressure and other substances and things like that, there's nothing saying that it can't create life. We just haven't found it yet. Sure. I, I have an agenda that I'm going to push here. Aliens are real. We're going to find them in my lifetime. That's, that's all I'm getting at here. I'm, I'm on board. You got my full support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right, this next article is from SciTech Daily, and it's called German Scientists Harness the Power of Photosynthesis for a New Way to Breathe. Wait, for us to breathe? Well, believe it or not, the title is actually the opposite of clickbait, because what it's talking about is actually <laughs> so much weirder and cooler than what it sounds like. Ooh. <laughs> so they start with tadpoles, not humans, from the African clawed frog species, or Xenopus lavis. And as we all know, frogs are amphibious, meaning they start out breathing through gills as tadpoles, but then later develop lungs and collect oxygen from the air once they become frogs. Mm -hmm. But researcher Hans Streicher of Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich wasn't satisfied with that and thought to himself, what if there was a third way? In particular, he had taken note of the symbiotic relationship between underwater algae and several species of corals, sea sponges, and anemones in which the algae latches on and produces extra oxygen and even some nutrients for these creatures. And if it Ooh. could happen on the outside of the body, Straka figured maybe it could happen on the inside of the body. So he took some of these tadpoles and put them in a sort of underwater life support situation where, like, they were pinned in place and he could measure their brain activity and directly control the level of oxygen in the water he could take the oxygen out of the water, watch them lose brain function and black out. <gasps> then he could put the oxygen back in the water and watch them slowly wake up. And then 
He injected live algae directly into the <gasps> arteries of the tadpoles' hearts. What the crap? Whoa. And there is, in fact, video of this procedure. You can actually see the green substance flow out of the heart and propagate through the tadpole's body. And of course, oh. the reason you can see it is because this species of tadpole is translucent, which is critical because uh -huh. what Straka did next was turn on a light which would shine through their skin and stimulate the algae to begin producing oxygen through photosynthesis. What in the world? And it totally worked. When Straka uh. removed all the oxygen from the water, the tadpoles were able to utilize the oxygen being created directly inside their own bloodstream, and they stayed alive as long as the light was still turned on. OMG. <laughs> and in fact, when the light was turned off and then on again a minute later, the tadpoles recovered about twice as fast as they did <gasps> when the exterior oxygen was removed from the water and then brought back. And they said that some of the tadpoles' nerves performed even better with the algae oxygenation than they had before they started experimenting on them at all. Okay, put it in my veins. I'm ready. I'm right, ready. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, we are a long way off from injecting algae into our own bloodstreams. Uh, not least of which because we are not transparent. You would at the very least have to put a light inside us. Although we're kind of transparent. Like you can hold a flashlight up to your hand. And you kind of get like some pink light going through there. I don't know. <laughs> or you have a new service when you go to the tanning bed where they just hook up an IV of algae to you. So you there can you get go. both done, you know? Well, I did actually read a study that said that sunlight can penetrate up to like 50% into the human body. Wow. Like it literally goes through us. So, you know, maybe there's potential. Yeah, we totally could. We're going to look a little green, but... <laughs> Listen, if injecting algae in our veins can somehow give us what we need to do more space travel, you know, we won't need to take oxygen with us. If mm -hmm. we can somehow refine this to the point where it's like you just have some kind of insulin pump, only it's algae and you're just hanging out in space. I'm just saying. <laughs> it gives a new meaning to little green men. Like you actually <gasps> have to be green to go out into space. <laughs> Bam, done mic drop that's it <laughs> <laughs> next link next link so npr has a lovely obituary of ruthie thompson an animator with the longest history at disney who hmm. died earlier this month at aged 111 Wow. wow. Right? <laughs> so good. I mean, not good that she died, but what a great right, right, life. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, God. Uh, Ruthie Thompson liked to tell people when she was around that she and Mickey Mouse grew up together. And that's not really much of an exaggeration because yeah. this legendary animator spent nearly 40 years with the Walt Disney Company and worked on nearly every film from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to the rescuers until her retirement in 1975. She even earned the title Disney legend at the turn of the millennium because she was the employee with the longest history with Walt and Roy Disney. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, she got her first break because she saw two women through a storefront at the studio who were painting and she got super, super curious. And she would just come back day after day to watch them work. And she apparently snooped around so much that somebody, quote, I think it was Walt, eventually invited her inside. She was just fascinated as a kid. She would sit on the bench. And when it got late, he would say, hey, I think you better go home. Your mom probably wants you to come home for dinner. So <laughs> she was just spending all of her waking time there. 
So hmm. fast forward a few years. She's 18 years old. She's uh, working at Dubrock's Writing Academy, where Walt and Roy often played polo and just saw her in front of the check-in desk. And they were like, wait a minute. And so they just went ahead and offered her a job in the ink and paint department. Wow. wow. Quote, I don't care if you can draw or not, she recalled him saying, we'll teach you what we want you to do. Talk about a lucky brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's often how it happens mm -hmm. when you have these brand new industries. There literally isn't anyone who right. knows how to do these <laughs> things. So you just yeah. got to pick someone who's really into it and be like, yeah, we'll yes. teach you. And knowing her face because she just hung around there all of the time, they knew that she would have that pluck to go ahead and figure it out. Yeah. She was invited to join the International Photographers Union in 1952 and became one of the first three women to be admitted. So she broke barriers all along the way. Yeah. Floyd Norman, who is a fellow Disney legend and the company's first black animator, said, Ruthie was our computer before computers were invented. Whatever the technical problem, Ruthie could usually solve it. And during her later years after retirement, Thompson kept busy at the motion picture and television fund Country House, where she applied her skills to the in-house Channel 22 and raising money during the pandemic for an on-site post-production suite at its TV and video facility. And she celebrated her 110th birthday last year with decorations honoring her two favorite things, Disney and the L.A. Dodgers. Huh. <laughs> Big Dodgers fan. Gathered from her own century plus of experience, she had a little bit of advice during that birthday gathering, which is have fun. Try to do as much as you can for yourself. Remember all the good things in life. Aww. Ruthie Thompson. She sounds like the perfect person to be working at Disney. You know, right? you got to have right. that like yeah. super sunny outlook. Yeah, like a culture mentor. Like if culture comes down from the top and the people who have seniority, it's no wonder why there's so much heart out of there. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This last article comes to us from theguardian.com. It's titled Meteorite Crashes Through Roof of Canada Woman's Home and Onto Bed. <gasps> oh no, is she okay? <laughs> Yeah, she's fine. She's fine. Oh. So a woman in Canada awoke in shock earlier this week when a rock crashed through the ceiling of her home and landed on her bed, narrowly missing her, but spraying grit and other debris on her face wow. as her dog barked <gasps> frantically. <sighs> Police were called and the culprit was initially suspected to be a construction site nearby where work must have sent the fist-sized projectile onto the woman's pillow. But when the construction workers said they had not set any blasts, but had just seen an explosion in the sky, oh the consensus quickly became that the rock was a meteorite. Wow. I, I mean, yeah. it didn't hit her, so that's awesome. But the odds, yeah. like it was so close. Unreal. Yeah. I've never been so scared in my life, she said. I wasn't sure what to do, so I called 911. And when I was speaking with the operator, I flipped over my pillow and saw that a rock had slipped between the two pillows. <laughs> Hamilton plans to keep the space rock and is very relieved that she wasn't injured. No yeah. kidding. Like, the fact that it fell on pillows, like, what a perfect storybook fictive path mm -hmm. for this meteorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, if right? you put that in a book, they would be like, that's stupid. Yeah. The meteorite <laughs> yeah, hit the other pillow. Happen. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Forgotten Preacher Who Predicted Black Holes a Century Ahead of Einstein, Columbia Sterilizes Drug Lord Escobar's Hippos, and Before Pong, There Was Computer Space. 
So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and appreciate our lack of advertisements, that's not an accident. It's a choice. We hope it's a choice you support. If you'd like to do so, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.